In the hot summer of 1518, the people of Strasbourg began to dance. It started with one woman jigging and shaking in the town square. More and more joined her, their numbers swelling to a crowd of hundreds who danced without stopping for days and days on end. Some of them collapsed and died of exhaustion. Local authorities who had first chalked up this so-called dancing plague to natural causes soon began to blame the outbreak on a holy wrath visited on a sinful population. They banned music and dancing and introduced a strict period of enforced public penance. The surviving dancers were given red shoes to cover their bloodied feet and led off into the hills to the shrine of St. Vetus, the patron saint of dancers. In the Brothers Grimm's version of Snow White, the evil queen is cursed to dance in red-hot shoes until she drops dead. Today, the neurological disorder Sydenham's Chorea, which causes the limbs to jerk uncontrollably, is sometimes known as St. Vetus's dance. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask poets to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories that they want to pass down the generations, stories that they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. With me is Oliver Fox, Armin Achama and Jack Underwood. Just to note that this episode may contain adult themes and strong language, so listen discretion is advised. So without further ado, welcome everyone. Hi. Hello. So when we're gathered around the campfire after the end of the world, telling stories to keep each other's souls warm, often the things that we go to are the stories we heard first. So I was wondering if you could tell me what's the first story you remember hearing as a kid? Oliver. So my family really liked to just make things up about their own lives and their own histories i don't know if that's a cockney thing or what i suspect it is um and the first outright lie that i remember being told as if it were completely true was that we used to have an elephant in our back garden like a live elephant i think i must have said like seen an elephant on tv and said mum let's get an elephant and in a kind of we just need to get this kid through the day without a tantrum kind of way my mum probably said oh yeah we had one but I think the phrase she used was it went extinct and then because you're three you're like okay cool that makes sense and if it doesn't I'll understand when I'm older um and yeah that comes to mind as the first story I remember being told and also internalizing as true for like too many years after that <laughs> I was 18 at the time yeah <laughs> when I finally at remembered uni, to so check like, yeah. hang on. wait a second Amina Pretty similar, I'd say. I My mum always wanted us to know about her experiences growing up in Somalia. And my dad has loads of cattle there still, which my cousin looks after. And I think there was a few, few stories I remember growing up of my dad tackling a lion, which never happened, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, and there's one which I think is pretty true because my brother has a scar on his, on his skull um of him herding some camels and i think he must have hit one and it kicked like the leg back into his head and it just and knocked him out and he was like six at the time by himself um in the outback and just laid there for a few hours unconscious and i i found it so funny as a kid and i just like i just i know he has a scar on his head but i'm just like that must be true jack i'm uh struggling to think of anything 
um, that I heard as a child that was sort of passed down as a kind of familial myth. But um, I'm a dad myself now, fairly recently, so I've been revisiting a lot of the early kids' books um, reading to my daughter. And I think, like, Not Now Bernard occupies a kind of very... Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a terrifying and thrilling book, um, kids' book, about a monster that appears in a in a child's uh, garden in Bernard's garden, and he tries endlessly to tell his parents about it, and they're just like, "Not now, Bernard." Um, and then um, the big spoiler is that he quite quickly in the story gets eaten um, <laughs> by the monster, who gobbles him up. And then the monster goes inside and tries to frighten the parents. And the, the parents are just like, not now, Bernard. Um, and it ends up with like the monster basically being put in Bernard's bed. And, you know, and he's like, but I'm a monster. And the mum's like, not now, Bernard. And, and I sort of like that, <laughs> the, that, that hit me with a kind of fresh sense <laughs> of like how strange and dark it is. Yeah, the, the, the full weight of the existential dread of that story is probably only available to an adult imagination. Exactly, <laughs> and the way that it's so ready for, the, for like allegory, like is the monster sexuality, is the monster communism, <laughs> it's, it's the monster... The monster is always communism, it, yeah, spoiler exactly. alert. <laughs> yeah. um, well, also, and the tiger that came to tea as well, like the, I love that idea of this kind of, uh, yeah, there's the, the appearances of these scary things um, in, in, in children's lives and the way in which they, they're sort of na- navigated. And so, yeah, I think that is, those are kind of, when I think about the early kids' books that we had read to us, or um, they're definitely kind of like, I think I can, I can see myself telling the story of Not Now Bernard around the, you know, the burning car that we're all huddled. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would love to hear your story, Oliver. Sure. I've written about the world snake, which is a kind of apocalyptic figure in Norse mythology. Uh, Jorman Gander, it's known as, which translates to huge monster, is the kind of cool sounding literal translation. Um, and the world snake is the son of Loki. Um, Odin, who is Loki's dad, who doesn't really get on with his son, sees this kind of baby snake and just thinks, no, 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 fuck that. We're not having that in the family. Throws it in the sea, forgets about it. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where it circles the world and starts eating its own tail. It's one of the kind of early examples of an Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail. Um, It gets so big where if it were to release itself from its tail, it would become this kind of cataclysmic existential threat. Um, And although Thor doesn't feature in my poem in the original myth, um, this is a problem because all Thor wants to do is like fight big monsters and prove himself. And so the poetic and prose Edda, which are the kind of key texts of Old Norse mythology, are full of stories of Thor like trying to fight this thing and people being like, no, 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 stop what you're doing. Like that will destroy the world, you idiot. Um, in writing this and kind of putting it into a modern context, I was thinking a lot about what would kind of that character of Thor be? What would this kind of hubristic presence be um, in like modern London, uh, which is my hometown? Um, and I kept thinking back to tech companies 
um that kind of like you see a lot in like with twitter right this kind of laissez-faire attitude to like moderation and curation and people's editorial responsibilities or even like people's responsibilities as designers in like modern tech and like ah oh, this would be fine we, we you know we trust the world it'll sort itself out and then these things get bigger and bigger and like more and more horrible um and more and more addictive and gamified uh and so in writing this um the world snake which in my poem lives uh mainly in the thames has become this kind of symbol of a kind of aggregated culture that's getting faster and faster and overtaking us in a scary way and thor is now this kind of scary big tech conglomerate trying to trying to use it trying to incorporate it in that kind of capitalistic way of yeah we can handle this and we can make it better and we can like embrace it and use it and you know all that kind of stuff so i better read the poem world snake one discovery a bar down in peckham with a poor choice of name 20 full years since the 3210 a ux designer draws a circle through a moleskine tears the page holds it up to the light like a forgery over an old street there's another creative dragging a pen like a hammer another circle west kensington muzzle hill same shit different paisley all of us this is what consensus looks like and when consensus gets weird it becomes omen from those four compass points phones will wake up in haptic chorus shivering down bedside tables into bins and hampers a pocket-to-pocket -pocket chain of phones that guides us inward to the thames where green rectangles of long dead backlights will punch holes through the river's leathery murk we'll see you there silhouetted against corroded old handsets dropped from party boats and bridges flip phones palm pilots an engage or two they remember you, World Snake. Two, onboarding. A curve of men across your skin, brothers of the tech with Triforce tattoos and Baldur's Gate keychains. We'll zip line over you, holding lanyards in our teeth like knives, our harpoons metal engraved with the names of Kickstarter backers. Ouroboros. Super collider, self-taster, self-sustainer, spinning your offcuts from across the wavelength. Video, audio, hadrons, byrons, old celebrities and new slang. A faster metabolism makes for a bitter meme. What we'd give to get inside you. Content creators ripping at each other's pie and mash aprons. Scoopfuls of guts, thick with slime. The colour of Amblin Entertainment. Someday you'll make a fine onboarding experience, so let us lift you from the river, release that catfish puckered jaw from its endless dinner, yank it out, fibre optic cable, a ringworm. 3. Scaffolding In what our partners in America call the bleachers, in what our partners in America call murder town, beyond the Harlem Shakers and Kerouac cosplayers. There's been some talk of cost, the long damp to come 
the big hangover, the spilling of tatty loose rizzlers and old Scientology leaflets from our rucksacks. No choice but to burn through those extra lives accumulated in earlier, easier stages, and, by the good wet graces of our salt and scuttle, unhook ourselves from your refried hot takes and mould-spotted JPEGs. Let's wheeze out the decades of carbon monoxide and ironic mixtapes, embrace the risks of your capture, and begin again. You can't keep tumbling over yourself, a buffering icon endlessly rolling, and we know that when stopped, you'll shower us in eels and venom and old lighters and phones and forgotten Kray-twin bodies, real things, objects, in what our partners in America call the splash zone, where Greenwich and Deptford all drowns the same. Look, a pram, a crate of beer deluxe, flotsam. We'll put you back somewhere. There are new shapes and you of infinity, of level up fanfares and daily quest timers, 2000 XP to your next unlock, you of gold, fruit, zenny, coins, endless, drawing then into now, folding us in, a hinge, a wormhole, the sweet science. Let us meter you, a complement of progress bars in increments of tiny pleasure. The object of cliché is to avoid cliché. This is also the object of capital, and even you can be reimagined through sound engineers, QA testers, gods and uncles. Hey, dip switch, slow down. So what drew you at first to this particular story because there are there were lots of different ways that one could approach mm -hmm. the kind of like vast terrifying reality of you know human-made climate change and things like that which you touch on on your poem so why, why this story in particular um a lot of the things that i tend to write about or rather a lot of my approach to writing tends to be about kind of entropy about things kind of slowing down, getting knackered, coming to some kind of full stop. Uh, and the idea of the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail, is that it's kind of... And, like, the reason it's been this kind of thing of fascination for so many centuries is it is this kind of example of infinity, right? It's, like, eating itself and regenerating itself from itself. Uh, you know, it became this symbol of alchemy because it was like, look, look at this, it's sort of self-sustaining. Um, so I thought it would kind of be the sort of, I'm not antithesis to things that I'm writing, but like a way to write about something that isn't just about like people getting tired and stopping. As it turns out, that's kind of what I've almost ended up doing. Um, but that's what kind of first drew me to it. Um, when I was thinking about writing this, I was also kind of obsessed with this more recent urban myth called um, Polybius, which is about an arcade machine in, I think, the 80s that was rumoured to be like so addictive that the FBI were taking biometric data from it to like figure out what makes people tick. Um, and, you know, in earlier drafts, that was a much bigger part of this, this idea of like this kind of malevolent force kind of creating this hyper-addictive um, hypnotic video game. Um, 
which just kind of eventually became the background of like tech addiction. There is something particularly compelling about the idea of a threat so vast and existential and scary and that kind of thing being brought home, being brought Mm. to the doorstep of where you live, because particularly with um, ideas of the apocalypse, it's always much easier to think about it through the prism of distance whether that is oh it's happening on some in some other part of the world or it's happening in with the distance of a Mm. fairy tale or whatever but you're bringing it home you are you are forcing us to contend with the fact that no this is this is here this is now and we are all to greater or lesser degrees complicit is it supposed to be that kind of challenge a little bit like i was rereading it um before coming to do this podcast recording and I I got a bit worried like is this just a kind of like old man yells at cloud kind of situation of like (laughs) you know what's wrong with that (laughs) (laughs) of of like like how big a problem is this like I remember reading about kids who are on Twitter now who've grown up with social media kids in America who have been affected by school shootings um and they've had like the most horrible abuse on Twitter. The kind where like, if I got that, I would just leave social media, even though I need it for work, for my life, I'll just be like, nope. But a lot of these kids have said, well, no, look, we've grown up with this. This doesn't affect us. It's fine. Like our brains have adapted around like this horrible online hellscape. So part of me always worries that like, is this like a big, horrible, cataclysmic thing? Or am I just nearly 30? I don't really know what the answer <laughs> to that is yet. There's something like, scary i think maybe about the way in which um like the infosphere like the abstract Mm. world of in which we sort of live in language and images and media and the the fact that that now feels like both like very divorced from the material world i mean we were we were joking about printing things off before (laughs) we started recording like the printer being like the last interface between like the material world something you can hold and the rest of the business of computers it seemed really interesting to me that you'd chosen like a like a a myth but like that's actually that that starts in sort of abstraction and story and the kind of like and, and the sort of timelessness of like allegory and language you know that kind of myth and then it becomes like co-opted into like this more techno uh like back into language like almost like the terrifying end of the world is that that's inescapable yeah the way in which we return everything back into a kind of uh reduced abstract immaterial isn't that that isn't that the hell the hell yeah definitely i mean i think the scary thing about the kind of manifold crises that are threatening the planet is this kind of corporate response of like we, we can handle it like mm. we can we can deal with this like there will be a way trust us and like you know with climate change that's kind of scarier when you know boris in the leadership debate was like to, to the you know climate change protester asked a question he was like well no we, you know technology is the answer we can solve mm. this as if you've got some idea of just this you know robot that's just going to clean up the oceans and that's all that needs to happen and we can keep like mm. eating big macs and we've seen wally you know we yeah, know, yeah we know what that robot looks like <laughs> and we know the Adorable. world what's the problem yeah. <laughs> but, but the world he inhabits is not like mm. sorted i believe you have a poem about a king for us i do yeah like uh an autocrat a a kind of uh 
a a person you know an actual a king like there's no sort of more terrifying absolute uh node of power than a medieval king um and i went for uh, the myth of king canute and the tide um canute was an actual king he was born round about um they reckon 995 um he took the English throne in 1016 and then the Danish throne in 1018. So he was one of the first kings to sort of um, to bring those two crowns of England and Denmark together. And he was pretty popular. He was like um, he was he, he was quite sort of kingly at the time <laughs> in terms of what what would be mired in those days. He was quite sort of sage and religious um and pretty good at like murdering people on the battlefield that was one of his his top top trump uh skills um but i think the reason that um he's more famous or well known is because of the the myth which is most commonly i think circulated um in this way that portrays canute as basically arrogant um, who's he's so powerful or so deluded in his own power that he he sits on the beach on his throne and and tries to um, command the tide um, to go out while as it's coming in and and of course gets his feet wet. So it's a kind of ha ha um, kind of version of the story. But actually, um, that's not the well. I don't know how far this actually happened, but um, the more original versions of the story are actually about him. Um, acknowledging the the sort of limits of his power, um, and and having with all these sycophantic and fawning courtiers he had, um, sort of constantly saying, "Oh, you can do anything. You're the best." Um, he instead like commanded them to take him to the the um, the edge of the sea, where he said, "Look, you see, I can't I can't do can't do everything. Um, only like God." I suppose can command the tide. Um, I'm just and, and apparently after that day he never wore his crown again either. So it was kind of like a, a showing of humility in that absolute power. Um, but I haven't really haven't necessarily touched on that aspect of it. I think what was interesting to me was just like to write from the point of view of a king. I don't normally write anything things as long as this. Um, I, I tend to write sort of fairly short poems. So. I just took, uh, tried to inhabit the voice and use that as the main sort of generative um, aspect. And yeah, being a king was fun, like totally all powerful and really sarcastic and perhaps kind of knowing that you're just really powerful is quite a sort of, yeah, it's not, it's not the normal <laughs> situation for Will me. Will you ever come back from it once that door has been opened? Well, I mean, yeah, luckily I've got part two, which is the tide answering. And the tide is like actually, actually more powerful. Um, I did some research into like the ocean um, in, 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 in preparation and, and discovered to my sort of like amazement and a little bit of horror, I won't lie, that like th about 30 to 50% of the water that we swim in and drink is actually older than the sun. Yes, <laughs> it's formed from like interstellar um, like clouds that is part part of the same material that the sun was actually formed from, um, or or pr before the sun. So I mean that's wild, isn't it? That's 
wild. So, I love it. So the voice, so the oceans are about 3.8 billion years old, but the actual water that formed them is, is much, much older. Um, I think the sun is like, what, 4.6 billion? I don't know, something like that. I don't have the number. Of the cup, <laughs> I think afraid. it's like four and a half because um, it's halfway through its life now, isn't it? It's like a middle-aged man. Um, that's what that's, <laughs> grumbling yeah yeah that's um, Jean-Francois Lyotard said that he's like what are we doing the sun is like basically like me <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's had enough um, or she um, so yeah the so I had like this mad king sort of I suppose trying to discuss the darkness and strangeness of power maybe and then the tide this much older form of power sort of obviously transcending human um, power and human time sort of replying and and perhaps kind of aware that it will return and reclaim time from humans king canute and the tide part one canute the office should always demean the officer We should always feel ourselves wasted on the task in hand. Regional manager should sound like an insult directed at anyone, especially a regional manager. People say, behave nicely, play in the sand without screaming, and there's a good chance love will find you. Might even wet your cloak to the knee. But it's not true. There's no justice to our station. Only prizes, volunteering for more sand. To be pitted, to be put before. Arbitration, somebody loved me, nervous sweat like dew upon the hairs of your back. My mother was awarded a husband, for example, and he awarded her a pregnancy in a dark room to lie down and moan in. She pushed some tearing, and I slid out onto the podium. Some are born great, some are born really great. I do what I want most of the time. Rudimentary croquet game with bread rolls and a sword. Rudimentary government game with a government. More bread rolls. Sex with an ambidextrous stranger. There are good children everywhere, and birds cough blood and shit down upon them without looking. Not, not my fault. I could award the children umbrellas. I could award the birds some poison. I could award my kingdom a holiday from its own violent machinery. Souvenirs and quackery, prizes and sand. You look at all the great architecture, Baroque cathedral, sleek cantilevered gallery, and it's invariably possible to say slavery built that. Somewhere down the line, no one gets what they deserve. Someone has to have nothing, otherwise what would be the worth in something? I like the sound of my voice like the weight of an axe head. It echoes out across the lawn and children start to cry in a brightly coloured sorting room and parents' ugly cry on a minibus at the airport. Very elsewhere now, my voice across the lawn, like piano, as if by accident. I give commands. The correct verb is give. I'm a stickler about that. I give you a career volunteering for sand or a prize. Whatever your hand grabs at in the air above your sleep, Whatever it is you have missing, a love too long deferred, Papa forgetting your recital, Mama taking her nipples all away forever, Or high school grinding your childliness into a stub, Into a problem about yourself, yourself a problem about yourself, Oozing from your body. 
Whatever snivelling victory you want, whatever it was you had stolen, I can give you back its figurine. With little moving arms and legs, your toy, your prize, the sickly sweet annihilation of your rivals, anything. That's what I am, king. My mind is unanimous. My watermark pressed into each brute transaction. Power is not an abstract concept. It's me. Do you know what your problem is? Your problem is not being king. I don't have that problem. I look in the mirror on days that I've been crying and say, ugh, the absolute state of me. That was a joke. Keep up. Mush, mush. Okay, okay, you can put me down now and have a little rest. I imagine it must be hard work, all that lifting and walking. But you will be rewarded. The water is very close, I know. But watch. I'm going to show you something. Part two. The Tide. Mirror, further, lifting, water, alpha, mama, hallelujah, slow, returner, all-time, weather, the sea, the sea. What if life should call you over to the darkness in the harbour, tell you in that shell of shelter, Brother, sister, life is winter, pressed against a child's shoulder, wifely is the sea, the sea. Wave and wave and waving hardly, breathing here and salt and salt, mirror further verses wanting, pulls the chain that thought the boulder down the beach to summon something older, deeper, walker, stop now, standing stood the sea, the sea, a book its mood. I can't stop myself. I grab all the arrows and throw my fists at the concrete wall. I can't stop myself. How did the song even start? Was it me singing in the beginning or a teenager fresh with cut marks? I am fresh with cut marks. I am over this baloney I am lonely on this beach, arriving, only leaving, always and again. Longly I have turned my errand into a life, my madness repeating a cliché, even before the human birthday which came of late, like an overhearing or gesture that the grass made. My tongue, grey-brown, finds this epoch like an ulcer, part-time change of patterns in the sand that was once just stones in my back pocket. I remember a king sat in a chair. He had an idea up to his waist. The sea, the sea, older than land, the commerce of lichen on rocks. How did the song start? Did I ask that already? There was a loud noise, other loud noises. I reared my body up. That's how the song started. I relaxed myself. Recent visual disturbances the human tune, H-bombs blowing bubbles like Mamma Mia, here I alpha papa, I'm a million air in your lungs, crack teeth, a swishy skirt and still singing about puckered peaches, shame to waste this fizzy drink and drown out all the men, their ordnance and libraries, the human tune, a dance craze sweeping the ocean. 
I don't like to drown, it's merely chocolate to me, driving air out the pink little holes so full and thorough, even death has to ask to come in, polite as she is in any case. My belly is bulging, I feel sick, my babies are melting their way back home. No more kings. Doesn't it make sense to submit these daft erections to my fair and final scrutiny? Even when you kill me, I'll keep coming. Plastic bags, I'm coming. Baby wipes, I'm tired. I want a lie down. I want to sleep of a world in which I am half of everything. The sky and only me. The sea. The sea. So what are we supposed to make of King Canute as you've written him? Because on one hand, there's something strangely compelling about that combination of arrogance and a strangely whimsical humour. But on the other hand, he's sort of relishing in making children cry. So yeah, mm. like, who is this guy? I think he's somebody fully reconciled and owning of his absolute authority. I think if he was, if Canute was actually a, a, a really good king, he would abdicate, right? <laughs> if he was really above his own um, station or whatever, he instead he 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 continues to live his life as a kind of absolute dictator, you know, a ruler who who genuinely believes that he's God's representative on earth. I mean, that the profound arrogance of that is kind of real. Um, but at the same time, he's a sort of person who says, "Look, this is a, this is human power, and and it's and it's corrupted, and uh, it's not like heavenly. It's the power that's invested in him is the power of is a mortal power." Um, so I don't know. I think he's 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 aware of how messy it is. I don't think we're supposed to like him, but I think we're supposed to recognize the kind of absolute entitlement and. And and it's not all and and that and the confidence that that entitlement brings and I mean it's not actually a surprise to us that some people do find that kind of charming or enigmatic. I mean, <laughs> look at who we have as our prime minister. Absolutely, there's something bizarrely comical and also horrifying at someone just filling the job description. Right, mm. a king is supposed to be an absolute ruler with absolute disposition mm. over the lives of his subjects and that kind of thing but we're used to people kind of veiling that and apologizing for it and mm. yes it's unfortunate but this is the best that we can manage and that's and so someone reveling in that mm. is something which allows us to see more clearly perhaps the the lines which that's crossing in terms of that, that kind of instinctive pull of morality mm. well i mean if you think about him as somebody who's kind of also saying this is unfair life is unfair um that this is that i was born into this um and you don't get what you deserve and that in order for somebody to have something somebody somewhere has to have nothing otherwise there's no point in <laughs> in anything um this kind of like the cruelty of of having and not having and um yeah he's like it's not fair um so you get like prizes or you get to like get more sand you know you get you get you get to live and then occasionally you get a prize or something or you don't and and there's no justice to that 
and you should feel insulted by any station that you occupy because it's beneath you. <laughs> it's beneath all humans are above the station that they're forced to inhabit, you know. Um, we should all, you know, we're all miraculous creatures. Um, and and yet, like, the way in which power works goes against that. And I suppose, like, it, it, oddly enough, I don't think that that's how Canute would feel. And I don't, and I, I perhaps think that's maybe just me trying to reconcile myself with this figure of absolute authority. But I think that's, if you have total power, then you also have, like, the power to admit that. That, that I'm not here by by being a good person or working any harder. I'm here by the brute violence of luck. <laughs> There's something that testifies to the sheer strength of your rule, if you like, that you're able to not need to give explanations and excuses. Just mm. be like, yep, I'm king. That's how the world is. Deal with it. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be divine. It is just the reality. Yeah. And I think that's just kind of like, that's also sickening when you, when you like, if a politician was actually to say that, no, no, I'm here because of my like family and my connections. I actually didn't work and, and hard at all. And I think maybe, and, and like, I, and I hold everyone else in contempt and I know that there's nothing, I'm not deserving of it. Uh, it would be like at once refreshing, but also repugnant. And I think maybe that's kind of what the Bullingdon Club why that is such a disgusting idea, the idea of like just like wealth and power uh, without any of that, like you say, veiling, without any of that excuse for itself. Um, and I think that's kind of, that's terrifying an idea, but it's also one that we recognize. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we all recognize that very strongly in your, in your poem. And in the first part, um, when you were, uh, um, embodying the king about I think the lines were about the king's mother being awarded a husband mm. and then the husband awarding her a pregnancy and then awarding them a baby and then him being awarded like given being like born onto the throne onto mm. the onto the podium and that was re it took me back quite a bit because I was just like oh that that actually happens you know what I mean mm. people the whole the whole phrase of people being born of a like silver spoon in their mouth it it's a thing, like mm. it's a thing. There are people who are born with wealth and there are people who are born in comfortability. And I think what I found really lovely about the two parts was the difference in voice mm. um, and the difference in how you read it as well. Um, going into the tide, like the, just the, the pace, like what you were reading was really, was really, really lovely. I suppose the thing that I found like really terrifying is that the sea doesn't stop Canute having power <laughs> at least in your poem I, I got the sense that you know he's still after all of that in power and that's like a real thing that exists mm. alongside this big unstoppable force of nature in fact he's probably gonna deepen his power by showing them you know check this out and then he's gonna get his cloak wet and his little king kingly shoes probably pointy um if the drawings of the if the era are accurate yeah um it's kind of like how you know trump might misspell something on twitter and it kind of strengthens <laughs> his base it's like oh yeah he's, he's a guy he's like a us. regular guy yeah, like, yeah. One but, of us. yeah but he's also like oh but look at his humility you know i mean all the all the mm. all the sycophantic courtiers who must have watched can you 
and going, oh my, oh no, look, he's he's getting wet. Like he's not all powerful. It's unpresidential. But then like, yeah, now you're like, oh, he's he's dreamy. You know, look at his humility. <laughs> he's and he's not. He, he's refusing to wear a crown. I mean, he's totally nailed it, hasn't he? <laughs> he doesn't need to. That's the point. That never needs to wear a crown again. Rory Stewart taking his tie off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like when it's shirt sleeves and rolled up, you know, when they, when a politician goes to visit a factory, it's hard hat and uh, shirt sleeves, isn't it? How embarrassing. They're there for 20 minutes, like, well, you guys keep on uh, doing the whole economy thing. I'm just going to, yeah. yeah. Great to have this chat, <laughs> catch up, yeah. Is that kind of a sense of the fragility of the moment we're living in something that resonates yeah i think it does resonate with me strongly talking about like the end of the world as well um like what i i write a lot about somalia and um somalia is like currently uh facing one of the worst droughts and um there are millions of people who their crops are dying and they're living in famine and um for them the end of the world has already come and then what has it has been coming for the last decades and they've been aware of it and the rest of the world have been aware of it um and it's yeah it's it's really it's a very very hard pill to swallow knowing that yeah it, it sort of reminds me of when sort of hollywood alien invasion movies are billed as apocalypse movies mm. and the press around it it's like can you imagine this foreign force coming in and destroying everything that you hold dear and everything that you know and like loads of the world are like yeah <laughs> we can imagine that yeah. and the kind of the horse trading over what constitutes the end of the world and what constitutes enough uh, stability for like what is a very small minority of the world to cling on to some sense of normality now even that is kind of fracturing as it were but you know the truth is it's been going on for a long long time mm. i would love to hear your poem actually. yeah sure of course um so my poem is about queen aruela who ruled in somalia in 15 a.d to this date, she's been the only woman to rule Somalia. Um, during the time that she ruled, there was a very horrific drought called Buran, and she led a lot of people out of that drought. She was also one of the most feminist rulers I've ever read about. Her husband and her brothers and her father tried to overthrow her, um, and she began a movement of uh, women taking leadership and ownership of their lives and their bodies in a time where that was very unknown. And I feel like I'm writing a lot about Somalia very recently, just because there's a current drought that's happened in Somalia. And I feel like I felt quite distant away from the country living in, in England. And I think by reading about it and by um, speaking to people who live there and contacting family and seeing how they are, I've felt more connected to my home country. And Somalia has a very rich oral tradition. It's known as a nation of poets within Africa. And they only adopted uh, the Latin alphabet in the 1970s. So before that, everything was orally translated and passed down through generations. So a lot of what's told to people about Aruelo 
um, could be considered a myth because she existed, but you don't know uh, what she actually did because it's not, there's no documentation around, around anything. There's no, there has been no documentation until the last 50 years. Um, so I wrote an ode, I guess, to her and to the drought and to Somalia and to my, my grandmother, which was always, I feel like every poem of mine is an ode to my grandmother because <laughs> she's the reason I started writing. Oh, the stiffness of the throat of the land. The hoarse voice surrendering to its closing. We are stuck in this moment of Buran. A drought to end all other droughts. Sheba asks us how we came to be in this position. Once the entire world came to our shores for our fish and our gold. We carved our own hair picks Afros enough to cover the continent. The music that escaped from us had not yet been discovered by the rest of the world. Oh, the stiffness of the hair, the notes, now the throats, the land. It will turn into the entire Somalia if we let it. The wells are dried up and have sealed themselves for fear of watching our destruction. We were taught to bow to nature. What have we offered her this month? The drying of the people, that's what. They have become horizontal lines you come across amongst the weeds. Oh, the stiffness of this drought, this Buran. 15 AD. Aruela is crowned. Voice reports ripple across the country. A woman is now their leader. The people reject her. In unison, they hum a C minus one, the deepest note of them all. We are not ready for a woman, they say. She replies, you are not ready for death either, or nomadity, but now you have found yourself living amongst both. Aruela travels. Kismayo, Las Anod, Mogadishu, Lasgel, Hargeisa, Togder. It was reported that once she saved an entire village from a lion, wrestled that mane to the ground. It was reported that once she saved a wife from her husband, wrestled that mane to the ground. They say she was too woman, too harsh, too ruthless, too angry. Before the world began to equate black womanhood with anger, the people of Somalia wrote the guidelines. Once her husband tried to overthrow her. With men and their voices, Aruela suffocated him like he was patriarchy. They called her a monster. I worry I gave Aruela the idea for castrating men. On a Monday morning, we follow a beginner's yoga tutorial. Dual mats facing the window. I struggle while she effortlessly glides through the downward dog, her crown grazing the mat. We laugh about men, how they feel the need to shout and control in any situation. Haruela wants to make a statement of her husband. On the Tuesday, like Medusa, she seduces him, then leaves his body in uncompromising positions like stone or yoga. He is in an involuntary headstand. They called her a monster. She called herself a leader. Led the people out of Buran, that drought. Led the women out of the kitchen, that heat. For many, she was the worst leader or the best until they met Siad. 1989. The people are calling for change. The men have adopted yoga positions and turned it into a game of genocide. Oh, the dryness of the land, of the people, we are constantly in flux. 
I wonder how the country has the longest coastline, an abundant amount of access to water and fish, but the driest land and crops. O Siad, the people asked you to stop, but you did not, so they flee, some to Europe, others from states to states, all away from home. Cassette tapes are buried along with bodies. They should have never questioned Aruela in the first place. All hell breaks loose. The people think the Jal has arrived, or Iblis, the devil. They see the moon split like the land, Yajuj and Majuj, Isa descending into Damascus. A cloud of smoke, Yom al-Qiyamah, the day of reckoning. They thought it was Iblis, the devil, but it was just Siad. Oh, As-Samal, bring Aruela back. What for you is the importance of reviving and spreading stories about queens and women like this? Because when you were talking in your poem about, you know, doing yoga with her and all of her just amazing deeds, saving a village from a lion, saving a wife from her husband, that kind of thing. I really resonated with that last line when you're calling her back into the present. I think she because her whole existence is a myth, um, a lot of what's spoken about her is negative. It's always, oh, she castrates men, or she she hates men, or she hates men, she hates men, women hate men. Um, and I th- think that for me growing up was such a difficult thing to comprehend because she's the only woman that's ever ruled Somalia. And she's known as the worst ruler. Um, However, in the nineteen, like in the nineteen eighties, nineties, I think there was the worst ruler. There was a dictator called Siad Barre, who um, massacred a lot of the north, and that's never spoken about. And that's never, he's always because he's a man and because he um, helped Somalia out of a lot of financial crisis. He's known as a pillar and is sort of loved and respected um and i for me writing this poem and reading up a lot about aruelo um it just reminded me about the the woman in my life and the the props that they're not given and what they're not awarded really and what they're um not respected for i guess and not like yeah admired do you remember the first time you heard about Aruelo? Yeah, I do actually. I we were talking. I was talking with my brother and my mum about another sort of Somali myth. Um, there's always a myth of. I feel like in most immigrant cultures or households, there's always a myth of a crazy woman who, if you run away from home, is going to steal you and. never gonna bring you back and (laughs) and incidentally that that crazy lady was her name was Amina um so (laughs) no relation no relation um so my family were telling me to like scaring me about that when I was a kid um and my mum just sort of brought up Aruela and was just like does anyone know about like Aruela and like no one at that point in my family knew had ever heard about her and she just yeah she was just telling like us her opinions of Aruelo and 
again, I also feel like that's why I have such a strong connection to her because she was told to me by a woman and by a woman who um, holds her in such high regard and a woman who also has lived in Somalia through incredibly horrible dictators um, who were men and she knew what that had done to the country and fled the country. Um, so for her, it was like, there's so much going on in Somalia. And one of the biggest beacons of hope was that once, once at some point there was a woman who ruled the country and that's never happened again. And it might not never happen, it might never happen again. Often we don't approach myths as opposed to history with the question, is this true? Because often that feels kind of superfluous or irrelevant to the purpose and the power of the story. Mm. So for you, would it matter if it turned out that, oh, someone found some, you know, corroborating evidence that proved that she'd never existed, but there was still this story? Mm. It wouldn't matter, mm. I don't think at all, because I've grown up wanting and searching and looking and researching about Somali women who have, who are inspiring. And this is one of the ones that I've come across. So it, it wouldn't matter that she didn't exist because her legacy is would still be there. And she would have still um, been incredibly like influential on a lot of people um, and has still, yeah, has still massively influenced women who do wanna do wanna run for run in parliament in Somalia and who do want to run for mayor and wanna wanna ha want to have a some sort of career in politics um, when that is a very male dominated area. Um, so it wouldn't matter at all. Like I don't, it hasn't necessarily mattered if that most things in the world aren't true anyway. So <laughs> what does it matter if I wear it? It's like we're in, I, it strikes me that when we're talking about like the poetic function mm. of like myth and story that we're like, is it feel like 50 years since the moon landing? And it's like, that probably definitely did happen, right? There's all these theories about like the shadows being wrong and it not, not happening. But like so much of like, even like supposedly scientific factual things, the first like image of a black hole, for example, and we're like, it, actually, it's not a photograph in the same way that you'd like. You, it's still not visible to the to the naked eye. So all the all those you know the colours are put in afterwards because they actually don't even belong to the electromagnetic spectrum that you could see. So the image of the black hole is like it's factual in that the data came from an actual black hole, but it's not like a picture. It's not like someone looking out the window, you know? Um, and even then, like our senses are fallible. So so it's kind of like what the, the whole importance of like often scientific discoveries or achievements, even like the factual, often the, what, what, what the reason they sort of resonate is because of this poetic function. We need to, we, like, because we need to feel like we know more than we need to actually know a lot of the time. Um, for sure, you know, so I think that like when you start looking at like these amazing characters in, in, in history, it's like we can't we can't know what it was like or the truth of that anyway. Um, but the the sort of poetic function is, is like ends up overtaking it. And even our own factual world ends up being kind of restored to mythology and its poetic function, I think. Don't know. Do you reckon we went to the moon? I don't know. 
Bedtime Stories for the End of the World takes no official position on whether or not the moon landings were fake. So that's about it from us at Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. We have had kings battling the flood, queens battling the drought, and tech bros battling a big snake living in the middle of the Thames. A lot to chew on. This project is supported by Arts Council England and the good folks at Spread the Word. You can check out all of the episodes from our past two series and find out more about our writers and their stories on our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram. See you there, sweet dreams, and thanks for listening.